it's conversations like the one you're about to listen to that really make me happy that I'm doing these podcasts for Hunt Quietly on conservation access and hunting advocacy. This one essentially covers all three of those topics. It's with fellow hunter and just a good dude, Adam Nelson from Minnesota. Our conversation really goes all over the place, which is a good thing. I mean, we talk bird hunting, bird dogs, snake stories, public lands, farm subsidies, ethanol, and most importantly, a project Adam has going on where he's trying to purchase a parcel for sale and create more public land in southern Minnesota. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. I'm here with Adam Nelson. Hey, Adam, what's going on, man? Not too much. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, were you able to watch any football today? The Vikings play? Uh, no, I'm not really too much of a football guy. No. I was uh, smoking a, a venison neck and working on the pigeon coop and working on the truck drawer system for my truck get ready for deer or bird season so that's kind of where i'm at today running right dogs a little bit too so yeah so, so. Wh- why don't you you tell everybody about yourself and your background and how you came to uh meet matt and then matt introduced us and and so why don't you give everybody the background uh, on how that came to be. Yeah. So, uh, live in Minnesota, born, raised here, um, lived in a couple other States, you know, here and there. Um, I grew up fishing predominantly. Um, my mother was a grade school teacher. So during summer, she would take me fishing a lot. That was kind of our, our summer fun activities. Um, which is kind of unique in that situation, but, uh, um, yeah. And then once I got, you know, a little bit older, um, and I was lucky enough to have a couple uncles that hunted, um, and they kind of took me under their wing and kind of showed me the ropes a little here and there. And, uh, yeah, fell out of it during college and kind of just past five, six years really gotten back into it. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, Matt's brother kind of has, has a name about him. So, um, when Matt's podcast come out, I think I heard about it originally from the honey dog podcast, um, checked it out and some of the things he was saying reverberated with me. So I, uh, contacted him and I was just like, Hey man. Um, I agree with your message. Um, when I started getting back into deer hunting, it was a struggle because all the areas around here were 
very crowded. Um, and that was just kind of how I approached this conversation with him that, you know, I agree with him on that, but I also pushed back on, you know, if, if I, I, I told him we, we, he's in a pickle here and yeah. he didn't like that phrasing, but that we, um, I don't know how to approach the hunter crowding without talking about the conservation organizations that fund a lot of this. Um, And I, you know, and, and I don't know where, where that line is to where, you know, we can and cannot draw that line. Um, Yeah. So before we get into nuts and bolts, what um you're 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 a fisherman and a and a and a bird hunter and I sort of have a similar story with how I got introduced to hunting but yeah my my um my dad didn't hunt but he fished and so he'd take 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 us fishing and I had a bunch of uncles that hunted and some really good friends that took me hunting and their dads so I had a lot of mentors so we, we yeah. share that that uh, that entrance into the sport. Definitely, yep. So yeah, and what, I was I was lucky enough that I had a grandma that lived on a farm and a grandma that lived on a lake. Oh, so, dude, that's that's um, a dream. It was yep. It was kind of the best of both worlds on on that front. So yeah. So you're a big bird hunter. What 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 kind of dogs do you run? I have two French Britneys, so two Epignol Bretons, which, yeah, they're they're kind of assholes, but they're great <laughs> dogs. <laughs> I I know nothing so. about dogs other than I love when my friends get them, and I could just once or twice a year go hunt with them behind their dogs and not have to train and not have to spend the countless hours that a lot of bird hunters do. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I, I spend probably more time on the dogs than I should. Um, but I'm, you know, and and the breed of dog just was kind of a happenstance situation. Um, I was planning on living in an apartment, so wanted a smaller breed and the breeder I connected with happened, uh, be the only one that responded quickly and let me come up and see the dog. Um, and it, it kind of evolved from there. So there's a lot of cool breeds out there. And if, if I had a bunch of land and a bunch of disposable income, I would probably have 10, 10 different breeds of dogs right now. So, yeah, it's like the most, most of the guys that I know in the bird hunting world, it's like, that's, that's their gig. I mean, yeah. my good buddy, I mean, he sacrificed years and years of, of archery season because he was just always running his dogs and uh, always working with his dogs during that that fall um, pheasant and yep. grouse season. Yep. And that's prime time to run your dog on birds, too. Yeah. So, and that's, that's you know, I, I do the deer hunting for our rifle season here, which is like the first weekend in in November and the second week of November. 
And other than that, it's predominantly chasing birds. So. And what what kind of birds are you you after? Grouse, pheasant, you hunt ducks and all? Um, no ducks, mainly grouse and woodcock. And I caught the sharp-tailed grouse bug here in Minnesota last year. So that's kind of the new adventure with those. Um, we got a pretty small population here, um, relegated the, to the northwest of, of the state. So for me to get into uh, decent populations, I'm driving five and a half to six hours um, oh, wow. to get to those. Yeah. Whereabouts in Minnesota are you geographically? I, I'm St. Paul, Minnesota, or St. Paul, Minneapolis, so the Twin Cities. So okay, kind of. Yeah, I-94 and 35E corridor, kind of where they meet. So, um, over, over, kind of south central of the state, by over by the Wisconsin border. I'm about 45 minutes from the Wisconsin border. Okay. So. Do you do, is all your hunting just local to, to Minnesota? Or do you... Um, Travel. This this season, I'm going out to South Dakota with a, a friend of mine for an extended weekend to the Fort Pier National Grasslands. So we're going to be chasing some prairie chickens and sharp tails out there, and oh, hopefully man. avoiding rattlesnakes. Yeah, so. I I hate the thought of of running into a rattlesnake when I'm out west. Uh, yep, it's uh. It's the one concern I have. So, but Onyx and the South Dakota Game and Fish list the prairie dog colonies on the map. And that's generally where all the rattlesnakes hang out. Um, not to say that there aren't out, any outside of that, but if you kind of steer clear of those areas, you're reducing the chances of an encounter. My friend did a uh, a snake breaking course on his way out to Montana this year, so he's pretty confident and he's not going to have any issues with it. Oh but, wow! What's a what's a snake breaking course? So it's basically there's very few select guys that will have a defanged rattlesnake, um, and if I understand it, the process correctly is that you just you let him basically shock the crap out of your dog anytime he shows interest in that snake. Oh, um, okay, so gotcha. he'll start associating that so that shock with that snake and he will immediately start to avoid it. I was thinking like you showed him a picture or something. <laughs> no, no. So they'll do that with snakes and uh porcupines a lot too. So yeah, so it's it's I don't know. It, in dog training world, you hear about you know breaking on dogs chasing deer. Yeah, and they'll you know you, you basically let them start chasing it, and then you give them a pretty high level shock, and they don't associate that shock with you, but they associate it with the deer. So they'll stop, eventually stop chasing them. Right. Some of your harder headed harder head you know, 
for driven dogs might take a little bit more to do, but so. Yeah, I was in, I I was in Wyoming, excuse me. I was in Wyoming and uh, like before we, the first time I went out there, I was like deathly afraid of snakes. And um, we, so I bought like a snake bite kit. I was going to get the boots or the uh, snake chaps. And my buddy kept, you know, sort of ragging on me, you know, saying a few choice words. And we were out there and we were walking maybe, I don't know, we were we were walking into somewhere. So we weren't like separated by very much. And I just hear this like high pitched scream. It sounded like a 13 year old girl saw a spider. Yeah. And it was him stepping on a big bull snake. So I, I always tend to remind him of that moment because he's he's sort of rough around the edges and, and likes yeah. to likes to dish it out, but <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, and uh if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. You know, and I think the best course of action is you can get all this gear and spend all this money on preparatory stuff but your your best bet is to have that vet on speed dial and know exactly where the closest vet is yeah Yeah, i'd imagine if you your dog gets bit by a rattlesnake your hunt's over pretty quick yeah yep you know and there's 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 rattlesnake or snake vaccines that you know are hit or miss that some people swear by them others don't you know and take benadryl give them benadryl don't give them benadryl you know and it all kind of comes down to know where your nearest vet is have them on speed dial and be able to plug them in the gps as soon as you get into the truck so you can get there as quick as possible so yeah i don't know so There's, there's lots of things to worry about so you just just go out and have fun if it happens, oh, I, it happens absolutely that sounds like an awesome trip so you you reached out to matt you had some concerns about your home state of minnesota and specifically the difference in your 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 regions and how some of the public land has been allocated and some of the 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 uh management that's gone on do you want to get into that now yeah so the majority of our public land is in the northern part of the state. So if I if I remember right, we have I think close to 11 million excuse me, 11 million acres of public land here in Minnesota and about 500,000 of that is in the southern part of the state. Now, I don't know if those numbers include our walk-in access program, um, which which obviously fluctuates yearly. And the majority of the walk-in access programs are in the southern part of the state. Um, but it's, it's predominantly northern Minnesota. So for a guy that wants deer hunt, you pretty much have to go north so you have the whole northern minnesota so like the northern half of the state for the most part and the closest 
the closer you are to the city, the more pressured they're going to be. So you're talking deer hunting right now. I deer hunting and pheasant hunting. I don't even bother doing pheasant hunting anymore. Granted, I grew up doing it, so I have you know I have that you know experience, you know that bucket list bucket list checked off, so to speak. Um, but for me to get to decent pheasant areas, I'm driving two to three hours, and then. What will end up happening is I'll drive another two or three hours looking for a spot to hunt because there's a guy there. There's a, you know, a truck there, a truck there, truck there. I finally find a spot and there's well-worn paths through that field yeah. where it's, it's just been hunted super heavily. Um, as opposed to, and this could go into hunter numbers. There's more guys hunting pheasant than there are grouse. I tend to, for my hunting season, the way I'm working it now is I go northwest early season where there's less people hunting sharp tails. Um, we have a pretty limited sharp tail population, so there's not a lot of people hunting. So I go there, northwest Minnesota, drive five or six hours to hunt those early season. And then as the leaves start to fall, then I'll start moving eastward and getting in the grouse with woodcock. Um, and by that time, the hunter numbers for the grouse and woodcock are starting to, to decline. And then by, you know, November, December, there's hardly anyone out there in the woods. So I can drive hour and a half, two hours and be into decent grouse. If I wanted to get into really good grouse numbers, I'm driving four hours. Gotcha. Um, but that's all north northern minnesota there's there's you know a handful of places south of here that just get hit so hard that there's really not much of anything there and lots of migratory species moving through it's it's not much but now are um, your pheasants um are they wild pheasants or they are they stocked by your your fishing game they're wild. Okay. Do you have a stocking so, program at all? Nope. Yeah, they have some of the WMAs. I think Carlos Avery, which is the closest one to me, it's about half hour, 45 minutes north of here. I think they occasionally stock. Um, but it's it's not this sort of stocking that I've heard talked about in like Pennsylvania or or Michigan. Um, it's, it's kind of, let's try to boost the population in this area more than anything. Yeah. I, I don't know why Pennsylvania, my home state, it's my home state. I don't know why Pennsylvania cannot, um, they just can't get wild pheasants to, 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 uh, to establish themselves here. I don't know if it's because we have so many foxes and coyotes. Um, yeah. Well, right. I know I know the rough grouse are having a tough time in your area. You know, there there's obviously a lot of reasons, but the West Nile is pretty bad in your region oh, right now. Um, yeah, I'm trying to get um, one of the biologists or executives from the Rough Grouse Society to come on. I'm I'm still coordinating with them because it is dire 
yeah. uh, in Pennsylvania. I, I can't even tell you. It's been a decade since I've flushed a grouse. Yeah. Yep. No, and I've been hearing that for past six, seven years. I've been hearing it talked about. So, um, and I, I don't know if that plays into it. I don't know what your agricultural landscape looks like either. Um, yeah, I don't. There's, so in, there's your, a in your neck of the woods, it's it's not the populations per se. It's it's the habitat and and the hunting pressure. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, I had all the numbers written down, which I can't find my notes right now. But I mean, we've lost a substantial amount of CRP recently. I mean, in the in the past decade, um, like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I think is when it really started to decline. Um. You know, I'll say this. They have Minnesota recently came out with a a prairie conservation plan that's trying to address some of those habitat issues. Um, But it's 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 there's no legislation attached to it. Um, It's just kind of this is what we would like to see done. And. Let's hope we can get this done type of situation. Now, is this statewide or is, or is it based on different game management u- units in, in Minnesota? It's, or is it like- it's state. It's statewide. Um, and it's it's targeting specifically the native tall grass prairies, um, remnant prairies that are here in Minnesota. Um so they have a couple of regions that they're trying to focus on. Um, and this is predominantly the Western part of the state. Um, you, you had mentioned that a lot of that land had been taken out of CRP and, and put into uh, corn for ethanol. Is that the yeah. case? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and that's, that's kind of the elephant in the room that, you know, we have this push to do renewable energy stuff that is having a negative impact that no one foresaw and that no one really wants to talk about. So Minnesota is, I think Iowa is the top producer for corn, ethanol. Um, Minnesota's in the top three, I believe, three or four states that produce it we give uh, i think in minnesota there is close to 11 billion dollars worth of corn subsidies related to um corn growing and ethanol production um and ethanol plants in the past 10 years i believe and and don't quote me on those numbers um I, i can if you do show notes, I can send you a link to where I found all that information. But it's a pretty yeah, big, it's crazy. It's it's a pretty big market. Um, but inevitably, what it does, and this is you know, some of this is anecdotal. Some of this is coming from guys that farm. Some of it's coming from data. Um, 
or, you know, colleges or universities doing studies. But what it does is it raises the commodity price for corn. And then that artificially raises it because of the subsidies from the government. Yeah. So you have the original corn subsidy that basically sets the price for corn because they don't want another Dust Bowl era situation to happen again. So they set the prices for corn, and then there's subsidies that they'll pay to the farmer if those prices, the commodity prices, dip below what they consider to be the appropriate price for corn. So there's some subsidies right there. And the majority of guys that get it are not these small farmers which are disappearing faster than you know yeah there's there's not many small farmers left anymore oh i know it's all big large yeah i don't know if you want to use the word factory farms but it's they're i don't know if i'll be comfortable with factory but it's it's definitely a commercialized farm yeah. practice versus, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. My my brother in law, his his father lives on a farm outside of State College, and the street that street the the road they live on it's very rural, and yeah. um, the the. Farms, there used to be five families that owned the farms. Um, and they all earned their living from farming. And now the farm still exists, but there's one family that farms all five to make a living. Yeah. And and I'm sure back then they shared equipment to get it done too. Yeah, it's just crazy um, how the small farms are going away. Yeah. So my the farm my father grew on grew up on my grandma still owns it but we so we still have 240 acres in south dakota and growing up i had the dream of oh i want to farm this boat you know um but in order for me to be profitable growing soybeans i need a minimum of 300 acres so even if i were to till up the whole yard, every square inch of that that farm, I wouldn't be able to make any money on it, let alone afford the cost of acquiring the equipment nowadays and what that's running for prices. Um, and why aren't those? Well, this is maybe off off the point because I guess if you had more people eligible for the subsidies there'd be more habitat degradation and more uh, habitat and CRP converted to farmland specifically for corn. But do you know why they're, they're, they're not uh, eligible, the smaller farms? Um, it's, it's not that they aren't eligible. Um, the price, this is coming from, the good and bad about the internet youtube there's farmers and so you can type in i want a farmer's perspective on corn subsidies um 
So one guy talks about, and, and, and there's data to show this too uh, outside of YouTube videos, that th the majority of guys or, you know, businesses that are getting the most from these subsidies are larger farms. Okay. So your average small farmer might, might only get like three to five grand a year in, in a subsidy for, for these, these corn prices. And, and it, there's, I'm still trying to navigate exactly how all these subsidies break out, but there's the subsidy, basically the market price subsidy, which the government sets and says, this is, should be about the price, what corn should be. Then there's your crop insurance that if, you know, this land gets destroyed by whatever flood, whatever, you know, you get some, some, at least some monetary, you know, recoupment from that situation. Um, then there's. Yeah, I, I saw you sent me one of those um, references, the federal farm subsidies. And in 2000, the subsidies accounted for 40% of the farm income. And yeah. then right now, we're about 20% of the farm income. Yeah. So, and, you know, and then what are you going to tell a farmer that he shouldn't be taking this? Absolutely you know, and not. exactly, you know, and as, as one farmer puts it like, Hey, my neighbor's taking it. Why shouldn't I take it? Right. Why, why should I let my neighbor get an upper hand on me? You know? Um, so none of this is, is to knock the farmer at all. No, 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 absolutely um, not. So it's just, it's creating a situation where, it's becoming more profitable to take land out of CRP or to leave it fallow because it's not it's not prime land uh, to plow, um, and that even if we can't get good yields on that, we can still make a decent profit off of it. Um, so there is yeah, so an incentive to take it out versus to leave it. That forty acres that's uh, prime habitat along the stream bank on the corner of the farm is is now being farmed for better for worse for, for yeah yeah and so the guy that we rent the farmland to he's a good guy you know comes plows my grandma's driveway digs her out brings her groceries you know salt of the earth type of fella he's talking about wanting to put in drain tiles we had we have a three to four acre slough that used to have what they call deer hay which is you know uh, some sort of grass that you know acted like a buffer he took that completely out and is plowing up to the slough the shelter belt near the road he took out and is plowing basically up up to the ditch. So even yeah. him, he's 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 doing he's trying to eke out every inch of that, that property that he can. 
um, yeah, take out a fence row. I don't think there's malice in that. I just think they're trying to maximize no. their earnings and like all of us are. Yeah. Um, no. And, and I, I don't, I don't look at him and say, Hey man, you're doing things wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it, I look at him and I say, you know, you're at least one of the local guys whose family has been around here long, a long time and you're still doing it, you know? Um, and you're doing what you got to do in order to to keep those those bills paid. So, so, so this is uh, you know worth asking. Do you think? Well, I should say this. Considering this is the Hunt Quietly podcast, and we're talking about overcrowding. Do you think the lack of 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 habitat or or the the hunting TV has has crowded because there's quite a bit of of bird hunting TV shows and yeah you know and I think the benefit to the bird hunting is there's there's not as many guys doing it um so it's not as susceptible to not as susceptible to to other species yeah. like elk yeah. and mule deer and stuff like that yeah yeah i think i think there's there's a bigger um there's a larger draw to that big buck to to those you know the trophy the trophy animal you get that big bird and he kind of looks like another big bird yeah. or even a smaller bird um so have you seen i'm sorry go ahead no no go have you seen an increase in in deer over the last how many years since this conversion has started happening um more corn fed deer so in other words has it improved the deer population and size of deer and whatnot the corn or yeah. just the amount of, of corn. Yeah. Um down south, southern part of the state, we're having a huge issue with CWD right now. Okay. Um now, I mean, and you can get into the whole argument, well, we're only fighting CWD now because we're testing for CWD. Um and that whole rabbit hole there. Oh yeah. Um which is it's that's a rabbit hole for sure. Um but what when it comes down to it, you know, I think, I think the problem is, is that most of that area is not open to public. So you got your private landowners that might take a couple of deer out of, out of the herd each year, but that's not enough to really put a dent on that population. Um, so even here in St. Paul, um, I'm, my property butts to a regional park and they hold deer hunts out there every fall, a limited archery deer hunt specifically for the purpose of culling deer. Um, so the deer populations are around. It's, it's if, if yeah, uh, we have deer. 
I don't think the population of the deer is, is the issue. I think it's, it's access. Um, and when it comes to birds, I think the birds are a lot more dependent on the habitat. Right. Um, you know, you talk about a rough grouse, they need very specific habitat in order to flourish. Um, pheasants are pretty, I mean, they do well in these ag states because, you know, that's what they thrive on. Sharp tail do not do good in those environments. Um, and I think that's my biggest gripe with, with all the bird hunting is that it seems to be on the pheasant and the non-native game bird versus doing things specifically for the native game birds in our state that are not doing well, that need specific habitat that, yeah, pheasants can live in that habitat, but if we're making habitat for pheasants that these other native game birds can't live in, then it's, I don't see the point of doing that. Um, and do, it do you think that's driven? Me. Do you think that's driven by just the popularity of, of pheasant hunting versus 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, especially here in the Midwest, pheasant hunting, it's got a pretty long tradition. Um, is it Minnesota like I've, the birthplace of pheasant hunting? Um, it's the birthplace of pheasants forever. Um, I don't know if we can say it's the birthplace of pheasant hunting, but well, well I mean, it, realistically, the birthplace, birth, yeah, sorry, birthplace of pheasant hunting is Europe. Yeah, I, I, I meant in the United States. I, I just remember seeing like a, a hunting show where there's a town in Minnesota that says they're the first. And then there's a town in South Dakota that says they're the first. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I think, I think we both, I'm sure Iowa has a town too. That's the pheasant capital of the world. <laughs> um, you know, um, and which, you know, Iowa was the pheasant capital of the world years ago. Um, so it's, you know, and I think, you know, regionally, that's, that's what drives the funding dollars here is the pheasants. Um, you know, New England, kind of your Northeast region, you know, the grouse is the king out there. Right. Um, you go down South, it's, it's quail, you know, um, it's, the birds are unique very regionally unique i would say which is i think what would s segregate them from big game hunting um grant granted you know like obviously elk live in a certain type you know um but there's yeah i don't i don't know where i was going with that but well yeah no i i, I hear you i, I think everybody's everybody's management plan when i say everybody i mean most they they obviously manage for game species and and everything that goes with that but i i do think there's a little bit of like creating opportunities for what people want i've seen that in pennsylvania and so you you manipulate things and manufacture opportunities and i could see yeah. that being the case with with pheasants taking a priority over grouse I'm making a huge assumption here. No, 
you know, I'll say this in this Minnesota concert, you know, um, prairie conservation plan, they have a pheasant plan in there. They don't have a sharp tailed grouse plan. They don't have uh, a prairie chicken plan, but they have a pheasant plan. Um, and I guarantee you it's because there's more funding that comes from pheasants and people wanting to hunt pheasants than the prairie grouse. Right. That would make sense. So, no, so and can- I mean, it's, it's hard. Like I want to go shoot Huns here in Minnesota. I'd like to say to, you know, maybe do a little something more about Hungarian partridge, but there, there's no, no one here cares about those. So. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I hate to say it all comes back to not the mighty dollar, but like, do you guys have, a permit that you need to, to pheasant hunt or like a tag or a um we it's small game and then a pheasant stamp which is uh just a couple bucks it's nothing nothing crazy um because like in then, pennsylvania they i stopped getting well it used to be included in the small game license and then they like in the last two or three years you buy I had to buy a pheasant stamp. Yeah. Um and I, I didn't I think I bought it the first year and I stopped buying it because I didn't use it as much because I love the archery hunt. Mostly it's stock birds, and then they reduced the number of stock birds by like two hundred thousand. So oh, they wow. cut the program and started charging uh a fee for specifically for pheasants and and I get it. They're trying wow. to do programs and just didn't fit into my, my hunt schedule. Yeah. So do you, yep. do you think the, the, cause it, it seems like, and again, this is speculation, but it seems like the ethanol movement is, is trickling, not trickling, but petering out. Does that make sense? Is that, yeah, well, you know, I think you just don't hear about it as much anymore. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, um, I, you know, and I think the main, well, I think part of why you don't hear about it as much is at least here in Minnesota, um, there's almost all of our gasoline now, unless you buy premium, has up to ten percent ethanol in it. Um, and then it can go up to 15% ethanol. So it's, it's integrated into our system right now. So I don't know if, if there's the marketing push to say, Hey, this is something that we should be doing. Um, doesn't need to be there because it's already implemented. Um, or if it's, we're diverging so much in the past year or so from burning things to batteries that it's just fallen to the wayside right now. Ethanol is almost turned into a mute point. Um, yeah, unless you, it's solar, wind, and batteries. It's, right. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear that, Doc. Yeah, they, they, no, they heard all that pheasant talk in South Dakota. 
Uh, that's the little one. The little one's a monster, man. So, no, that's all right. All right. What, so my, my question was, do you think, so you've seen farms uh, change their habitat specifically for corn. Have you seen any signs that it could go back? Uh, um, uh, I don't know be frank about it um i because see, the subsidies program is still you know, in place if, if, right yeah you know and, and the subsidies isn't solely you know isn't solely about you know ethanol ethanol plays a big part into it but you know the majority of the the subsidies seems to be about keeping farmers afloat and not wanting a sort of collapse of the farming industry, which I think evolved from kind of like the Dust Bowl Depression era, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's originally where the original subsidies came out. So I don't, I don't see in our the way things are going now that subsidies of any kind are going to start getting reduced, whether it be on the farmer side or on any other social side of things. Seems like there's more subsidies coming up, you know, almost every day. Yeah. Um so on that front, I don't think I don't think it looks good on that in, in regards to that. I think potentially what we could see is the next farm bill increasing the funding for CRP. If that happens then you know, at least if if the argument can be, be made to at least raise the price of CRP land to what the commodity prices prices could um, bring in on those lands, then I think we could start seeing something turn around. Um, but until those CRP prices reach the commodity prices, I don't think, you know, it's it's. Why would I lose money on a land? Right. You know. Right. So, no, I hear you. And you know, with 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 the price of everything, the way it's going, why? You know, why? Why would a guy want to do that? You know. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, the, with 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 the way things are going, there's it doesn't seem like there's no end in sight with these price increases and gouging and. Yeah. No, and um, one of the guys I work with has a farm um, south of the city here, about 45 minutes, and he's talking about losing money haying right now. It's, it's, it's a net loss to hay right now because of the price of diesel. So he's haying stuff that he's losing money on that he used to at least break even on. Um, and that's kind of the situation a lot of these farmers are in right now, I think is that, you know, right now they need those subsidies. So, um, and he even talks about, you know, guys tiling all over the place. Um, and I brought up, you know, it's, it's, 
kind of reminiscent of the Dust Bowl, don't you think? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. He goes, I, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happens again. Wow. That's scary. So, um, how, how hard is it to get on private land in southern Minnesota? Um, honestly, I've never tried. It's it's not something that I don't know. That I'm fairly introverted, so I don't like going and knocking on doors and kind of sketches me out. Um, so I really haven't. I've joked about running my dogs on some of the pheasants of the guy I was just talking about, and he kind of chuckled. He goes, "Oh yeah, maybe, maybe," but that's that's the extent of me asking for permissions. So. I do have goals this year of asking some farmers for sharp tail access, but we'll see how that goes. So it sounds like in your network of friends and family, you, you have enough farmers and landowners in your life that you can, you can have plenty of hunting to do, but, and then it sounds like you, you travel quite a bit to. to yeah, honestly, you know, 90 i'll go to the farm occasionally just to walk around but i don't think i've taken besides squirrels i haven't shot into anything substantial off of that farm uh, uh, was so, that since when since since i was a kid i have not shot in anything off of that farm oh, minus wow. squirrels oh wow um, gotcha so it's i'm 99 percent uh, i'm Hundred percent public land, hunting. So, so has there been any attempt by by the state agencies to to increase access and walking areas? What, what's what's that program like? And how's how's the um how's the land so that program? That program is called Walking Access. Um, w I A. Um, and farmers sign up for it and i don't know exactly how much they get per acre um and i'm not versed enough to say they're allowed to allocate this many acres this year this many acres that year so on and so forth um but we pay it's a five dollar you know tag so to speak access tag and then that gives us permission to go onto those properties um and the majority of them are you know southwest minnesota and they get hit pretty hard so um i think that the, the fee is a great idea though oh yeah i i have no problem paying it um i i'll buy i'll spend 10 bucks 20 bucks you know um and i don't plan on hunting any of them this year but i'm still gonna buy it because i appreciate it um matt's talked about doing some work for guys that do uh what's their access program out there in montana block management um, yeah yeah um doing some work on their properties as a as a sort of thank you um yeah. and i've debated reaching out to you know good or worse bha to see if they that would be something they would want to 
maybe hop on. Um, yeah, I it's think not, that's a you know, great idea. That's that's my biggest qualm with, you know, it, for a lot of our younger guys that are out there doing it, we don't have the money to just throw at these organizations. We might have a weekend that we can go do some work. Um, and I would rather go do some work than throw money at somebody that I don't know where it's going and hoping that it goes to the right place. Yeah. And so Pennsylvania has a, a, a program. It sounds like it's similar, but with the exception of it's a walk-in program. And I just looked into it and unbeknownst to me, there's like five landowners right around me, like really right around me that are in this program. (laughs) Oh, nice. And I showed my buddy who I hunt with, which is one of his neighbors. And these are all places that are a hundred to 200 acres. Some, some even less. And my buddy knows the guy that's in this program. He goes, there's, there's, there's no way he's going to let you hunt there. And I'm like, well, he's in the walk-in program. And so I, my son just turned 12 and he had his uh, hunting education um, class. Yeah. And so I asked the game warden, who's our, our game management unit game warden. And I asked him about the program. And he said, yeah, he goes, those guys, they're in the program, but they don't have to let just anybody on. And I'm like, well, who's, who's overseeing this? He's like, nobody is. Uh, but if they get into the program, they get like, they don't get paid, but they'll get like reduced hunting license fees. They'll, they can get extra doe tags. But it seems like an oxymoron to have this program and then the landowner can say, no, you can't go on my land. Yeah. Which is. That's here in Minnesota. If they, you know, agree to be part of this program, signs get posted. It's electronically posted. Onyx even has the areas posted, and anyone can hunt them. As long as you have that five dollar, you know, stamp, so to speak, you're you you have access. So. That's interesting that you can be part of a walk-in and access program, but then deny people access. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. And especially, yeah. you know, and, and I'm looking into it more. So maybe there'll be a follow-up on this because I may tie this in to something uh, similar in, in another podcast. But yeah, it just seems like, a, a great idea would be to have a program like that where you you pay into it to have access to these programs and nothing uh that is going to break the bank but enough that it can make some incentive some some incentives for the landowner to to be involved in it and and maybe increase the program but if yeah. it's getting hunted hard and you know that's sort of defeats the purpose too because 
assuming that there's game on there, then the habitat's being compromised with increased hunting traffic. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that come with, you know, pounding the pavement per se on these yeah. properties that get hunted hard. Yeah. No, and, you know, like I said, most of them seem to be geared towards more upland hunting. Um, you know, they're fallow egg fields that don't necessarily have any shelter belt or anything suitable for, you know, the Midwest style of deer hunting, which is you put up a tree stand and kind of sit all day. Um, but you know, like I said, most of them, you know, you get out of the truck at the parking spot and you can see the paths where people walk. Um, and as you go further in into the hunting season those paths get you know noticeably more distinct um to the point where you can be like okay this is how you walk this field you just kind of follow the path yeah so but i don't know you know it's and for me it's okay well let's go up north and let's go chase some grouse it might not come away with anything but i'd rather do that than you know walk over something that's been walked over a hundred times already right so when we talked previously you mentioned a parcel of land that you, you were you were inquiring about uh trying to get that into the public land uh, for, for Minnesota, you want to talk about that yeah. a little bit and kind of explain the, the property and, you know, what steps you've taken, who you've talked to, that sort of thing. Cause I, th I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's kind of one of my dreams is always to have my own property. Um, like a lot of guys aspire to that. Um, but so I'll, I'll peruse, you know, there's whitetail properties. There's another one called Land Watch. Um, you know, it, sites, the sites really aren't that important. But um, some of the cross property in Minnesota, that's 380 acres. And they wanted 160000 for it, which is cheap. Yeah, that's um, not very expensive for that. Yeah. So, so, you know, and this, I stumbled across it after listening to Matt's podcast and kind of, you know, realizing I've used public lands significantly, if not predominantly, and I haven't given much back. And most, you know, I'm, writing the legislators, hey, let's do this. You know, I'm I'm member of the Sharp Tail Grouse Society of Minnesota, Prairie Chicken Society, you know, give funds to them, um, Rough Grouse Society, um, but wanted to see if I could do a little bit more. But uh yeah, so I reached out to Pheasant Forever. I reached out to Minnesota Sharp Tail Society. Um sent an email to a guy at the DNR who was on um, a recent acquisition of a property that went into public hands. 
uh, reached out to BHA just to kind of put feelers out as to what all is involved in that process. Uh, um, and BHA is the only one that got back to me, ironically. Um, no shit. Yeah. Not so, even the state agencies. Nope. Um, pheasants for, you know, and, and I specifically targeted guys that worked on the previous one. Um, Cupido Wildlife Management Area is, is the recent one that we acquired. Um, so, you know, thinking like, okay, they just went through this process. Like, that'll at least be a good way of, you know, they went through it recently. So, so yeah. they're going to have a good understanding of it. Um, but yeah, BHA was the only, only organization that I've heard back so far. And what was their response? So, um, their response was, well, we don't do land acquisition. You know, we're, we're predominantly a voice for, um, promoting, you know, um, promoting habitat stuff. And, and I believe they were involved in that cupidal um, acquisition as well. Um, which, you know, and I responded, well, yeah, I, you know, I, I know you guys aren't into land acquisition, but maybe you guys have contacts that, you know, could point me in a better direction. So, um, I got, you know, ended up talking with, uh, Aaron, I forget his last name. He's a coordinator for Minnesota BHA. Um, and basically from his view, if it's not already attached to a current WMA or government lands, um, he felt like they're probably not going to look at it too closely. Um, like they kind of want to expand on existing public lands versus creating a, a, you know, a little parcel, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, but after that conversation, you know, you know, I brought up, you know, I, I wish there was more boots on the ground kind of habitat work versus just writing legislators and, um, send money. Um, and he agreed with that and hopefully I kind of, connected him with the Minnesota Sharptail Grouse Society. Um, and hopefully it not to pressure maybe this is a good way of pressuring him, but um Minnesota Sharptail Society has an annual spring brush habitat removal um geared towards improving the habitat for sharptail grouse. Um, and they do it every year. Um, so I'm hoping they could maybe jump on board with that and get some more individuals involved with that to maybe expand that program a little bit more and get a little bit more done within, within the spring season. So. Um, That's uh, incredibly disappointing that the state agencies and, and pheasants forever haven't at least reached back out to you. Cause I'm sure they've, well, I know that the state's, uh, 
will will purchase land I mean, at what frequency i don't know but yeah and that's you know i, I might have i got a list of i don't know 10 or 15 people that i need to call um and you know the crappy thing about it is their work hours are the same as my work hours so to be able to connect with them <laughs> is is proving a little a little more difficult yeah um, and I, I should have probably asked you what do you do for a living um so right now i work for a millwright company um yeah been welding for the past five six years so i recently left the aerospace industry for the millwrights so now i'm uh i'm an estimator so i'm officially pushing papers instead of out on the pad floor so does that give you more time to hunt (laughs) um i'm taking every friday off in october and every other thursday off in october and then i'm taking the whole week off for deer season so um hopefully down the road i'll have more time for it but um i'd like to think i get out there more than the average guy but not as much as some of the hardcore guys that i know that have a remote job so he's out in montana right now and yeah (laughs) nothing wrong with with getting out in the woods as much as you can yeah no you know it's it's basically you know the weekends is what i got and hunt them pretty hard october is when i hunt the most um and then after november it's kind of just day trips yeah um so so is this property still for sale i believe so i checked like two weeks ago and it was still up and i think the price had gotten reduced um if i'm not mistaken but so what did you say it was 400 acres it was 381 if i'm not mistaken um and it's already in um wetland restoration program which is a federally funded program and that's one of the questions that you know i have is that well if it's already in a federally funded program what kind of barriers does that create for turn it into state land like is is there a state federal conflict at that point um would that be uh you know one side of it it, well it's already in 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 a in a wildlife program so to speak um conservation program so the habitat work in order to get that property back up and running is going to be little to nothing um have you reached out to the Army Corps of Engineers? No. And that that's that, haven't even thought of them. Because if, if it's in a wetland restoration, then they have a vested interest in it. And what better oh, yeah. way to to ensure that those wetlands don't get developed ever? Yeah. Well, and and so the property is has a perpetual easement on. So, no, like, if I were to buy it, I couldn't put a house on it. 
I can't put any roads on it. Um, you know, so, so the only difference. Yeah, yeah. So the only difference, in my opinion, is is well, it's either public or it's private at this point. Um, yeah, I don't know. And and this this is kind of. I wish I got have gotten farther with it. Um, but it, I, I don't know. I, after my new job doing estimating, I, I get the amount of time it takes just to get a hold of people and uh, try to get things rolling, really. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I might have not just contacted the right people. Um, I think the reason I got a hold of the BHA guys is because I you know specifically asked for the head of the B- Minnesota BHA. Um so uh, and it's what also sucks is that all these organizations don't have a phone number. They they have their generic contact us page. Um so you can't really you know can't really pester one guy saying like hey man why aren't you responding to my emails? It's going back into the generic folder hey why aren't you responding to my emails you know can you imagine if if every bird hunter in southern minnesota made a call (laughs) and collectively got together yeah i mean and you know this is my conflict is is you know, BHA, I think, has brought, you know, I, I, not, I almost refer to them as, as the hipster conservation organization. Um, <laughs> that's kind of like my, my little joke is like, they're the hipsters of the con- conservation world. Um, having said that, like, they're the ones that reached out and got back to me. And they're the ones that, I'm making some progress with. Um, so as much as I could knock them for, you know, whatever this or that, like they're the ones that are helping me do what I, I'm, what I'm passionate about. Um, you know, and I don't know how to reach a larger audience without organizations like that. And like organizations like Feds forever, even though I think they, promote pheasant hunting too much to the point where it's not fun going pheasant hunting in Minnesota anymore, in my opinion. Um, I'm publicly. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm in contradiction with, with myself on this. Um, yeah. Well, but just think about it, you know, like you, you want a property that's close to home that you can hunt on and that's open to the public. And, you know, I, I think it's awesome. I, I, I wish, I wish more people, including myself had the, the, the ability to, to, to think like you do and to, to, to inquire because you know, well, that property might not be an example, but how many properties are out there that are, are going to be sold and developed? Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, it's a matter of stumbling upon them too. You know, I, I guarantee you the DNR doesn't have a guy that's scouring MSL listings for perfect properties. Um, so yeah, you know, and, and the big thing is, you know, just trying to figure out how this process works. You know, if, and that was, I guess, my biggest goal wasn't necessarily to get that. Yes, it would have been awesome to get that into public hands, but really just to understand more about the process and how it works. Um, and, you know, down the road, maybe find that property that actually can get into public hands. So. Yeah, and and I it's a it's a challenge because you have to have obviously the funds, you have to have the public interest, and and then you have to have an organization that backs it. Because it, it would be impossible to do it without an organization backing it, like Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited, or yeah. Rock well, yeah, you know, Foundation, I'm... one of the, 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 the big guys that actually purchased properties for Habitat and for hunting. Yep. Yeah, no, you know, and Pheasants Forever has done a lot for Habitat here in Minnesota. So, you know, if if it sounds like I'm knocking these organizations, you know, to an extreme, like they've they've done a lot of good, you know. Um and and when it comes down to it, I I would be leaning on them for guidance on how to do it, because they at least have the experience to do it. So, and the funds really, because I think that Cupido was, uh, I think it was in the millions. I think it was one point something million dollars to acquire that land. And so, what was special about what? What did you call it, the Cupido? Cupido, um, it's uh, adjoining some some public land already um but it's in um an area that has a lot of remnant um prairies so it's it's fairly unique uh, still has remnant populations of um prairie chickens minnesota prairie chickens so we have a very very limited lottery draw um season for them and if you you know get your permit you're only allowed to take two birds out um and i think i think they cap i think they cap the harvest under 500 per year gotcha so this property Uh, has has some value yep yep um, and it, and it's in an area that has not an endangered, but a very, uh, close to endangered population of birds in the state that used to be native. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think we have less than 3% of the native tall grass prairie left in Minnesota. Um, so it, the, the guys back in the day used to talk about just walking out their door and shooting prairie chickens. Yeah. Um, 
they, they're just that abundant. And now it's, if you see some here, it's, it's been a good day type of situation. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I certainly hope that, you know, people don't take my comments as, as a dig on, you know, pheasants forever, but it, it would be nice if you had heard something back from them. That's, that's all I wanted to get across. Uh, and I, and I truly hope that somebody listening can reach out and, and give advice or, or point you in the right direction for, for this project. Yeah, no. And you know, I, I'll, I'll say this too. I might've not contacted the right person, you know, and I'll, I'll at least give them that. Um, I'm sure if, was it St. Pierre? What forget his first name heard this, he would maybe probably give me a call. Um, at least to tell me whether it's, whether it's feasible or not, but yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't want this to come across as, as a dig to any of these organizations. Yeah. You're just um, looking for your own hunting spot. You just want a handout, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just fucking buy this place for me so I can go yeah. hunt it. And then, you know, I don't, uh, as soon as, as soon as it becomes public, let me be the first to hunt it, and then everyone else can trash it. That's, yeah, that's exactly. How it'll go. Yeah, <laughs> you're just selfish. So, you want it all for yourself. Yeah, I do. If I had Bill Gates' money, I'd buy it the western part of the state and just lock it out. So, <laughs> Ted know, Turner. But, yeah, I uh, wish I had that money, but no, man. Uh, I mean, it's it's just. I'm excited for this season. I got a new dog. Like, if I got to drive six hours, it's it's part of the fun at this point. So, um, I don't know. I'm trying to make the best of it, and I don't live in a bad state for game. It's just Minnesota is unique. Northeast part of the state is a different sort of habitat. Northwest part of the state is is a different habitat. South central or central, west central, so like southwest is a different habitat. And then the rest of the state is a different type of habitat. So it's, it's we don't have an abundance of anything, but we have a little bit of a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, um, I just put it in my, for the elk tag this year, which I, I didn't get, but I mean, we have an elk season here, very limited. Um, you, you get that tag once and you're done, even if you harvested an elk or not. Um, yeah, we got, we got lots of ducks. If you like duck hunting, yeah, I don't know. Don't come to Minnesota though. <laughs> <laughs> and you still have moose hunting, right? No, that got shut down uh, 2013, I think. Um, I heard rumors that it might be coming back, but um, last I heard, there's there's like a brain worm going on, and then tick migration has been going up. Um, so the ticks aren't dying. Either it's a new species of tick, or they're attributing it to global warming. Um, but the ticks basically aren't dying off during the winter. So there's, I, I don't know the term for it, but basically 
they're they're just getting sucked dry. Yeah, in, I, in layman's terms, kicks are so so bad. It, it is it's it's so bad around here. When I was growing up as a young teenager hunting, I, I didn't even know what a tick was. And in my oh. early twenties, I was turkey hunting with my buddy, and we got in the car and. He looked down, he goes, there's a tick on you. I'm like, what the fuck is a tick? I literally <laughs> said, like, what is a tick? You would have fun in Minnesota because I started bringing out a tick home for my dog in the field. It's, it's. I mean, he would, last year, he would come out and his head would just be crawling. Um, and I would, I would pick, you know, 10, 15 ticks off of him. And then, okay, let's go back hunting. I mean, come out of the brush again, like, dude, come on, man. I don't know what you're getting into, but this is getting ridiculous. So. Be, behind my house, there's like a valley and there's like a, a little ridge. And the deer walk on the ridge. And I did like from my backyard. I went one way, 100 yards on the ridge. And then cut down in the valley and then come up the other side and came back a hundred yards. So not a very far walk at all. I mean, literally yeah. 15 minutes. And I had seven on me. And this is like in yeah. April before anything was blooming. Oh. It was still cold it's, out. It's when I go out in April, the car ride home, I'm picking ticks off the whole time. And chucking them out my window, like it might be an hour, two-hour drive, and I'm picking ticks off the whole time. Like they just come out of nowhere, and I don't know. As soon as, soon as it gets above thirty-two degrees, they pop out. Yes. We've even have had them in December, where my dog ended up picking up a tick-borne illness because um, I took his his call his tick collar off in December because I was like he he doesn't need it on. Yeah. Well, it got to like 35 degrees that day and he got a couple ticks and yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I have German shepherds and when I go for walks, there's a farm three doors up and it was, uh, it was being sold. So there's nobody on it. And I just went snooping around one time and yeah. it was in January and, uh, and we came back, and two days later, my dog had two ticks on him. <laughs> yeah, in January. Yeah, yeah. So now I give—I don't know what you give your dog. I give mine Provecto. Um, and yeah, we do. The ticks will bite. Still. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it—it's it's worked great. Yeah. So I'll just keep running that. So I don't know. Too many well, hey, man. horror stories of, of knockoffs, arresto collars, giving dog seizures got me a little freaked out. So Yeah, <laughs> we did we did those collars at one point and it was short lived and we went back to the pill. Yeah. So well, uh we should probably wrap things up. Yeah. Yeah. That was I, good. Uh, yeah, appreciate you coming on and and you brought up some some great points that I don't think a lot of people are talking about the green energy and and the impacts that that it's had 
that it's having on on populations of game birds and and habitat issues. I think that's all stuff that needs to be really talked about a lot more. And that's hope. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish. You know, on on this, I guess, portion of of hunt quietly, which is you know focusing on the habitat, the access issues, and the the conversations that need to be discussed. Yeah. No, yeah, and there's, you know, there's some scientific, you know, there are some studies, I didn't bring them up, but there are some studies, you know, from the universities talking about um, the detrimental impacts of the ethanol production and, and what that's doing. And there's, I think, one I sent you that deals specifically with um, the decrease in CRP enrollment with the ethanol stuff that's going on so yeah it totally aligns with your your boots on the ground uh assessment where you've seen it firsthand i, I think i think it's well documented yep so. <laughs> well cool man i uh appreciate the the talk yeah and, thanks uh, for coming on and and hopefully i most- was somewhat coherent <laughs> oh yeah this is this has been great and hopefully you get you get some some movement on on that property as long as it's available i guess there's hope yeah i'll keep trying and you know at the very least i'll get an idea of what's doable and what's not so at this point i i think that'll be a step forward so well, I appreciate it, man. And uh, yeah. good, Adam. Good talking with you. And uh, we'll talk soon, I guess. All right. Sounds good. If you're ever uh, in the Midwest, let me know. Yeah, same with you in Pennsylvania. All right. All right, Adam. Thanks. Talk to you. Yeah. Yep. Bye. Yeah.